I'm Pastor Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What podcast. Our goal is to provide young couples with the resources they need to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. We are so glad that you're here. Let's get to the lesson. Whose voice can come in? You don't have a handout. The, there's a couple left over there on the counter. So grab you one if you don't have one. We are spending a year in theology. Where the, the theme of our year is the year of knowing God. And so we're going through and we're looking at different aspects of God's Word and what it says about Him. Um, okay, I asked this last week. What is the number one purpose of the Bible? You guys remember? Teach us about God. There it is. Okay. We're going to keep revisiting that question because by the time we get done with this year, um, I want you guys to just be able to rattle that off to know, okay, the, the number one purpose of the Bible is to teach us about God. Okay. And the second thing, the second purpose of the Bible is to teach us about what? Ourselves. Excellent. Because what that does is, as we know who God is and we know who we are, uh, the Bible highlights the contrast between the two and that compels us to action, take action. Right? So why do we spend time in God's Word? Why do we study God's Word? Number one, to know who God is, but also to understand who we are and also how we apply ourselves in our salvation, in our sanctification, what, what God's doing around us. If we don't spend time in His Word, essentially, we don't have the soil for things to grow, our faith to grow. Okay. This morning, we're going to look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So we've been looking at the different attributes of God and the different persons of God, and the final one is the Holy Spirit. So... Uh, the first thing I want you to see is that the Holy Spirit has always been in the action. He is, he's always been active. The Holy Spirit has always been active. He was present in the beginning in Genesis 1, verse 2. We looked at that last week. That He was in the beginning. Uh, the earth was without form and void. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. The Holy Spirit has been active in every part of creation. Not just in the, in the uh, central being, uh, bringing matter into existence. But He has essentially been the conductor, if you will, and he has been putting together this orchestra of creation, this timeline of how things have, have unfolded. So he was he oversaw creation in Genesis 1-2. He gave life to humanity in Genesis 2-7. Uh, this is when uh, God takes the man, he, fa- he fashions him out of the earth, and he breathes life into him. Um, the, uh, the, the concept that we have been supernaturally animated by God with a purpose and for a purpose is one of the fundamental pieces of understanding the work of the Holy Spirit. You could not live without the presence of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about before that there's this concept of general grace and salvific grace. General grace is the idea that if I'm sinful and I'm broken, that means that I'm immediately separated from God. But in an act of grace, so that I don't get destroyed automatically, God issues general grace. The idea that general grace is how God essentially holds back the consequences of sin just so that I can have an opportunity to come to faith in Him. So general grace. The Holy Spirit is the one who provides general grace. He holds everything together to make sure that it doesn't unravel and make sure that that we don't immediately get destroyed because we've rebelled against God. Salvific grace is whenever the Holy Spirit works and He issues the invitation to come have a relationship with God and exposes our sinfulness and also the way that we become right with God through through the, the gift of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. And when we accept that, we become saved. We are saved from our brokenness. Um, the idea of the Holy Spirit, not only does He hold us together, not only is He present in creation, is he, is he's preventing 
the horrible things to happen to us that would happen being separated from God, but he's also providing a way for us to be made right with him. Okay, so the Holy Spirit, that he's always been active. He is, he is uh, active in Genesis 6-3 because he resisted people in their sin. He constrained sin. Uh, he came on the judges in the Old Testament and the prophets and the kings and the warriors in times of, of, of uh, supernatural need to be their help, to be a, a, someone who uh, issued a, a word from God. The idea is special revelation that God has, has spoken through his prophets through the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, that means that he has been interacting with us. He oversaw the writing of the Old Testament and he preserved it. Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen uh, talks about how the word of God is breathed, that it is uh, it is how we become righteous and how we we, we understand what uh, truth is. Uh, the Holy Spirit also is the one who led the people of Egypt out of the the out of out of bondage and to the Promised Land. Remember the stories of the column of smoke by day and the column of fire by night. That's the, that's the physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit. In the same way, when the tabernacle was, uh, as, was used in worship, the Holy Spirit rested in the tabernacle. The Old Testament is full of these, these images of the Holy Spirit. Um, and He has been in the action. In the New Testament, He magnifies the fulfillment of the prophecy and the gospel through Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one who He indwells the people of God. He leads them. In Acts chapter 2, when all of the disciples, the essentially the farm team of Jesus' followers, are in the upper room, and he tells them to wait, the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2 on the, the, the church, and they begin to preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit indwells us even today. He protects God's children physically and spiritually. He advocates for God's children, and he encourages God's children and oversees their sanctification. It is easy for us, especially in our Baptist tradition, to ignore the Holy Spirit. But He is just as much God as all other persons of the Trinity. Um, in a way, what, hap- what has happened is that um, our more spirited, or different word, our more charismatic friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, they, they are, um, some people have abused the theology of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, many people from a traditional Baptist or Methodist background um, are leery of talking about the Holy Spirit. But if we, if we want to have a, a real view of God, a, a real authentic view of God, we need to understand exactly what He does and how He interacts with us. We cannot say, we cannot afford to say, essentially through the way that we live our life, that the Holy Spirit does not exist, whether He doesn't involve Himself in our lives. He is just as much a part of our life as any of the other members of the Trinity. So He's always been active. The Holy Spirit is also God. Matthew 28, 16 through 20 talks about, uh, it's the Great Commission, where Jesus, he's about to ascend, and he gives us some instruction. It says this in Matthew 28. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The implication, especially in verse 19, where Jesus says to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what Jesus is saying is you are baptizing them on behalf of all of the authority of heaven. So if Jesus goes out of his way to mention the Holy Spirit in his final words to his his disciples, that implies for us that the Holy Spirit is an intrinsic part of of the Christian life. 
So that means that the authority that God has given to Jesus that has now been delegated to us comes by way of the Holy Spirit. So have you ever prayed that God would intervene in a situation in your life? That He would provide you wisdom? That He would provide protection? That He would provide understanding? That He would be able to work in the lives of other people? What you're doing is you're asking the Holy Spirit to intervene. Many times we pray and we say, God, would you, would you intervene here? And we use the generic word, God. But really, theologically, what we're asking is we're asking for the Holy Spirit to participate with us. Have you ever considered that you can address Him directly? If, you're, if you open, your, open His Word in the morning, if He truly is the teacher, that I can say, I can say, Holy Spirit, please give me wisdom. If I'm approaching a situation with somebody else, I, I can say, Holy Spirit, please intercede for me here. But He is 100% God, just like the others. He's not just the errand boy for heaven. He is truly God Himself. That's profound. Now, the third thing is that the Holy Spirit is our guide. The Holy Spirit is our guide. John 15, 26 through 16 gives us some instruction about uh, who He is and also what He has done. Uh, in verses in John 15, 16, 26 and 27, it teaches us that He proceeds from the Father and He is sent by the Son. So essentially, we talked about last time this idea that we have the Father... We have the Son, and then we have the Holy Spirit. That the Father, that He sends the Son, the Son, Jesus, He goes back to heaven, and then He sends the Spirit to teach us. And the Holy Spirit, He magnifies the Son, and He also magnifies the Father. So, consider it this way, that the Holy Spirit has been sent by the Father, through the Son, to teach us how to live. Now, the full Testament of Scripture we talked about last time, that Jesus, the Son, He is our perfect high priest because He has lived a human life. He knows how, what, what our lives are like. He's been through all of the difficulty that we, that we go through to the most extreme extent. So that means that when Jesus, when He sends the Holy Spirit, He sends Him with a human context. He sends him with a human perspective. So that means that when the Holy Spirit, when he interacts with our life, whenever he is guiding us, that means that he's guiding us through the wisdom of Jesus. So when the Holy Spirit gives us direction, God is not up on his throne giving us lofty, lofty instructions that are separate from our reality. God knows exactly the constraints that we're under, which is why usually when he gives us instruction, it seems so personal. God, how, how dare you ask me to treat this person this way when they've done these things to me? You know what, that, what they've done. And he's not just saying, do that because it's the right thing to do because I said so. He's doing it through the instruction in the context of the son who says, I know what it is to be objectified and hurt by people. I know what it is to try to make right with people that have hurt you and have done bad things to you. As he guides us, he does it from this, this incredible perspective. The verse 6 verses of John 16 teaches us that, that He protects us when we're persecuted. This is when Jesus says, you're going to be kicked out of your synagogues. You're going to be kicked out of your communities. You're going to be on your own. But know that I'm going to send a helper that's going to be with you as you walk through these difficult situations. So the Holy Spirit, He protects us when we're persecuted. Uh, he also does all the work for us. John 16, 7-11 says this. 
says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. He's talking, Jesus, Jesus talking to his disciples. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. <coughs> concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. In essence, what he's saying here, like in verse 7, he says that the Holy Spirit is going to be sent by the Son to do the work of the Son. But essentially, Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away because I'm, I'm limited by time and space right here in this moment with you. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to dwell in all of God's children. That means that the same authority that Jesus had on earth has been delegated to us through the Holy Spirit. So in other words, Jesus can be present in the entire world because he works through his children. So Jesus says, it's, this is actually a multiplication. This is incredible because what it means is what Jesus was able to do constrained by time and space, God now does through every single one of his children. That's profound. Have you ever thought that you are an ambassador of heaven? That when you interact with your children, when you inter interact with your spouse, your colleagues at work, you are an ambassador. You carry God's name with you. In fact, the name Christian means little Christ. It was originally meant as a derogatory term. But God intended it for something that was more profound. Verse 8 in John 16 tells us that, that he convicts the world to bring them to salvation. Uh, verse 8 also says that he convicts the world to show the righteousness of God. The Holy Spirit is working in the lives of his children, in the, in the lives of the people that interact with his children, in that he is magnifying their brokenness, he's magnifying who Jesus is, and he's also... Uh, revealing divine accountability. He says the Holy Spirit is going to essentially lay open things to where you can see them. I love the analogy of, of, of thinking about the presence of the, Holy, of the Holy Spirit in our lives essentially gives us new eyes to see the world. The people who are God's children who have the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life, they're like the people who see in full color. Those who are lost, who are constrained by sin, are like those who only see in black and white. They can make shapes out, they can navigate life somewhat, and they can imitate some of the truth that they, that they read in Scripture. However, they miss the full context of what God has created. So we can see fully what the limitations of the, of the lost don't understand. We see God moving because they don't have a spiritual component. God's Word says that they are spiritually dead. But the Holy Spirit, He works in our life to where we can see things of full color. They can, they can navigate and debate about shades of gray, but really they're missing the full picture. So the Holy Spirit is revealing all of these things. In John 16, 12 through 15, he teaches us how to navigate life and to glorify Jesus. He says this, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He's talking about the relationship between Jesus and the Spirit. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And what the Father has his mind, therefore, I said that he will take of mine and he will declare to you. The idea that the Holy Spirit, his number one job, his number one goal is to magnify the Son. Why is that? Because it's through the revelation of the Son that we come to faith in, 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 uh, in Christ. It is through the ministry of Jesus that salvation is, is achievable. So the Holy Spirit was never going to magnify himself. He's always going to magnify the Son. Always. And the Son is always going to magnify the Father. The Father is also always going, to, always going to magnify the Son. The idea is the Father and the Spirit, they elevate the Son 
you go through and you read Philippians chapter 2, they elevate the Son because it's through the revelation of Jesus that people come into relationship with all three of them. So the Holy Spirit, He is our guide. The Holy Spirit is also the King, the King's seal on our hearts. Uh, back in the ancient world, well, we see this even today. I mean, if you've ever seen an official document from a government agency, but there's always a seal at the top of the paper. What that is, is that it's a sign that this is an official document. This represents the full weight of that organization. So if you get a letter from the president, it's going to have a gold embossed seal on the top of the letterhead, and it's going to say, from the office of the president of the United States. When I worked for Congress, we had stationery that said, from the United States House of Representatives. It's a, it's a, it's a representation of authority. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14 says this, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ may be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So in other words, what this is saying in verse 11 is that we're sons and daughters of, of heaven and we are heirs of heaven, meaning we're going to inherit heaven. The same inheritance that belongs to the Son. He has allowed us to participate with Him in that. It says in verse 12 that He works in our lives as we glorify Him. We glorify, we glorify all three members of the Trinity, all three persons of the Trinity, that as He works in us, it elevates this. So, so the idea is, you know, imagine... Uh, Imagine living your life in a way that is so contrary to, to, uh, to, to general wisdom, and you start to see this person who is just, they're making decisions that don't make sense, but they're all, they always seem to be favored in some way. The world looks at us as those who have been sealed to the Holy Spirit as we see things in color and like, man, how did you understand those nuances of life? How did you see all these little things? And we begin to realize that God uses us as a, as a beacon to show people heaven. Your life is a window into heaven. That's what's meant here. That as the Holy Spirit has sealed us, not hold on to us, that's one, one, we, one way we could apply it, but in other words, He has stamped us with the Holy Spirit. So then we walk around, God essentially, like a piece of that letterhead, is showing you to the world like this, saying this is an official representative, this is an official representation of my authority. So how we live our lives really matters. If we walk like the lost, we are not worthy of what God says that we are. So as we are navigating our lives, remember, as we make decisions, whether it's privately in our home or publicly with our friends and with our community, all of these things are representation of God's authority in our life. He has said it this way, that, that through the work of the Holy Spirit, He puts us on display. Now, in this, we have, a, we have a really simple explanation of the gospel. He says in verse 13 that we heard the gospel through him, through the Holy Spirit, and after we believed what he said, we were sealed or stamped by God with the Holy Spirit in our lives. In other words, the presence of the Holy Spirit is proof that you're God's child. There are sometimes when, it, when uh, I have navigated myself, the idea like I question, am I really saved because I'm doing these things, but I'm not supposed to be doing these things, and then go back and forth. And then I begin to realize that the presence of conviction is confirmation that I'm God's child. Because, because one of God's children can't continue in sin without conviction. It just doesn't exist. Because otherwise, 
if, if I'm doing worldly things, if I'm doing sinful things and I don't feel bad about it, I don't feel convicted, that means that I really, I don't have the presence of the Holy Spirit who's, who's essentially laying my heart open and saying, this is, this is wrong, you shouldn't do this because this is bad for you. This is poison for you. If you ever eat something that, that doesn't really go down quite right, and you got a stomach virus for a couple days, you got some stomach sickness, right? It's because your body says, this is not agreeable to our constitution. Same thing is true for worldliness. A child of God cannot consume the world and have, an un, ha, and have a, a completely settled stomach. It's going to make us sick so we don't feel well. Um, the fifth thing here, the Holy Spirit is the life giver. Romans 8 is full of great illustrations of, of how the Holy Spirit interacts with our life. He is our life giver. Verses 9 through 11 say this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in Christ. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. In other words, what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit resides in you. We use this phrase often, it's kind of falling out of favor, but that Jesus lives in my heart. Incomplete statement, not quite accurate. The Holy Spirit dwells in me. Jesus doesn't dwell in me. I mean, yes, he's, he's, they're all members of the same person. However, more precisely, the Holy Spirit is the one who comes to reside in my life. So the Holy Spirit, he is the life giver. He's reanimated me. The same thing that happened in Genesis uh, chapter 2. Even though our flesh is dying, this is our fallen nature, even though we're dying, he has still reanimated us to be ambassadors for heaven. So the Holy Spirit is the one who actually re, he regenerates us. Uh, Romans chapter 12 talks about how we don't live according to the world, but instead we live a transformed life because of the work of the Holy Spirit. He is renewing our mind. Um, he also says in verse 11 here that we know the Spirit has the power to bring us to life because what has the Spirit done? He's brought Jesus back to life. So if you say, oh man, you know, I don't really feel like I'm walking, I'm living a, a redeemed and regenerate life. Well, uh, and I don't, that, that means I'm skeptical of what uh, Jesus uh, can do for me. Well, what he's saying here is that this, the, he's already proven that he can raise somebody from, from the dead. So it goes without saying that the Holy Spirit would do this for you. So another thing that's been, that's been interesting in my quiet times uh, this week, I have, uh, I've been thinking about something where I'm, I'm helping teach Old Testament uh, survey this, this semester for the Institute. And one of the things that we've been talking about a lot about is prophecies, right? And I realized something that, you know, in my perspective, prophecy means that God tells the future and then it comes true, right? Well, yeah, from a human perspective, that makes sense because I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So if God says this is going to happen and it happens, it's like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. It's like whenever you're watching a, uh, an illusionist and they do a magic trick and they're like, this is what's going to happen and then it, then it happens. You're like, what? How did that happen? Right? But from God's perspective, he's separate from time. Like he's completely disconnected from time. And so that means that when God says something's going to happen, he's just making a statement of fact. He knows that the virgin's going to conceive and give birth to a son. It's just going to happen. It's just a statement of fact. So when he says uh, to King Ahaz that, you know, this will be a sign, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, he will be called Emmanuel, God with us, right? For us, it's like, oh my goodness, this is going to happen. And then he proves it. it. It comes true, right? So for God, it's a statement of fact. Well, now take that and apply that to your life. God says that 
we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. He is not saying one day your life is going to be great. He is making a statement of fact. How do we know that's going to be true? Because He's already proven Himself to be accurate. All of the prophecies about Jesus, all the prophecies about what was going to happen, how they came true, that means that the things that God says about you are also statements of fact. When He says He's going to regenerate your life and give you a new body, that's a statement of fact. When he says that one day you will be with him in heaven, that's a statement of fact. When he says that he is going to work together through you to impact your, your community, that's a statement of fact. So whenever we are we're reading his word and we're thinking, oh Lord, I really pray that you, that you come through in this situation, do you realize what we're saying is, God, I'm doubting that what you, what you really say that you're going to do is going to happen. It's, we are willfully ignoring the truth of Scripture where it says, God is authoritative. So when the Holy Spirit guides you and He teaches you, He gives you life. What he, what he is doing is He is just making statements of fact. Go and do this thing. Yes, sir. Live this way. Yes, sir. Not because God is up there trying to manipulate us to, to make us uh, something uh, that we don't want to be. He knows exactly what's going to be the best for us. And so when He gives us instruction, it's a good thing. Lastly, we're going to cover this thing really quickly is the Holy Spirit cultivates fruit. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about how God gives, uh, through us, gifts to the church. He has given us specific divine uh, blessed abilities to be able to contribute to the church. And what that means is God uses it to create unity. He uses gifts to create unity. Uh, uh, Romans 12, 4-6 says this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we ought, though, though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. In other words, in other words what he's saying is that God has purposefully given you limitations. Why? So that you can have other people help you in your life. When was the last time that you celebrated your limitations? Now, obviously it's rhetorical, right? Because that's really offensive. God, why would you? I mean, I want to be able to fix everything and do everything myself. But the truth is that God has purposely given you limitations so that other people can participate with you and help you in your life. This is a huge deal. So that means that if we deny our limitations, if we deny people to help us, we are actually telling God that we don't want things to work the way that He wants them to work in our life. So, but why is that? Well, Hebrews tells us that we are meant to uh, love people, love our community by serving them. That when we're together in Hebrews chapter 10, it says we're supposed to be compelled to love into good works. What does that actually practically mean? You love what you serve. How do you learn to love your spouse? You learn to love your spouse through serving them, through doing the things that you don't want to do for their benefit, right? Things that you don't really want to inconvenience yourself over. But here's a practical thing. Lindsay and I took dinner to Seth and Hannah the other night. Okay. Did we have to do that? No. No, we didn't. But by doing that, that little, what, 10 minutes we got to see you and, and uh, Samson and Hannah in the driveway, that knit me to, to, to Seth and to Hannah and to Samson. By serving them, God is teaching me to love them. So that means that the way that God's gifted you is His way of bonding you to other people. Do you feel isolated from a community? Do you feel isolated from friends and people that you can pour your life into? 
Well, the very first place to start is asking yourself, where am I serving? Where am I investing myself, the gifts that God's given me? Because if I don't love someone, that means that I'm not serving someone. The best way to find out that you've got a bad marriage is to ask yourself, why, uh, in, in what ways am I serving my spouse? Because if I'm not serving my spouse, I'm not learning to love them. We don't learn to love people through the good times. We learn to love people through slogging it through in the struggle. So the Holy Spirit gives us these gifts on purpose to create it so that we'll serve each other. The second thing, if, if, the, if the, the Spirit through the gifts creates unity, that means that the Holy Spirit gives, gives fruit to preserve unity. Galatians 5, 22-26 talks about the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Have you ever considered that all of the fruits of the Spirit, they all surround the central component of conflict? Every single one of the fruits of the Spirit are supernatural responses to conflict. So that means that the gifts of the Spirit create unity, and the fruit of the Spirit preserves unity. So as we are we're living in the Spirit, or walking by the Spirit, as we're abiding with Him, that He is producing a cohesive community. So why is the Holy Spirit so important? The Holy Spirit is so important because it is the rubber meets the road, most practical way that God, God intervenes in our life. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit is important for us because it teaches, He teaches us how to live. He teaches us how to love. He's the one who, who compels us to bond ourselves with other people. He forcefully gives us limitations so that we have to ask for help. And if we refuse to obey what He has done or how He has designed our lives to work, we will grow frustrated. So the question for you this morning is, are you walking by the Spirit or are you walking in your flesh? Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says this. He says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh wars against the Spirit, capital S, Spirit. And the, and the flesh wars the, the, the flesh wars against the Spirit, and the Spirit wars against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. So as you ask yourself, as you evaluate, as, you, as you're in the car waiting in traffic to go home, talk to each other and ask the question, is our family, is, is our marriage centered on the leadership of the Holy Spirit? Or are we trying to figure out our own way? Those who understand this principle will find themselves with healthy marriages, healthy friendships, and healthy children. If we ignore it, we do so at our own peril. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.